0: Hi, I'm Benjamin
1: Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Kanavos, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing Jürgen Habermas. Jürgen Habermas is still alive and still publishing from time to time. He's 94 years old. He studied under Theodor Adorno in the 50s, but he's not exactly part of the Frankfurt School. Max Horkheimer initially didn't like him. He was with Adorno for three years and was then pushed to leave Adorno's circle. He finished his studies under Wolfgang Abendroth, a Marxist. He then returned to Frankfurt in the late 60s, where he took Horkheimer's old job. He even reconciled with Horkheimer on a personal level. But in 1971, he again left Frankfurt, this time for a posting at the Max Planck Institute. He stayed with Max Planck until 1981, when he published The Theory of Communicative Action, and returned to Frankfurt. Adorno died in 1969 and Horkheimer died in 1973. Neither ever got to read Habermas's mature works. Even Legitimation Crisis came out in 1973, the year of Horkheimer's death. This is all to say that while Habermas was undoubtedly influenced by the Frankfurt School, he is not necessarily of it, and in this episode we will be treating his ideas on their own we will not be treating them as in some way derived from the work of Adorno. For Habermas, legitimacy is distinctly different in the modern period, because in the modern period it operates through communication. In a medieval society, the king makes a public appearance as the king, using pomp and ceremony to visually project power, status, and links with the divine. But for Habermas, in modern society we have something called the public sphere. The public sphere is the set of places where people gather together as individuals to discuss politics. It is quintessentially the coffee shops, salons, and literary societies of 17th and 18th century Europe. In subsequent centuries, it is the set of civil society organizations and settings that are analogous in function to those coffee shops, places where people gather together and reason with one another about affairs. Now, sometimes they gather together and do things other than reason with one another about affairs, and then there's a question about how much those spaces resemble coffee shops. But we'll get to that. For Habermas, the distinction between the public sector and the private sector is ideological and prone to dysfunction. If the state is public, but the family is private, and most individuals do not hold public office, private individuals would seem to feel heavily alienated from the state. However, the public sphere makes this distinction functional by creating a space in which ostensibly private individuals can come together to discuss public affairs. This gives the private individual a sense of involvement in public affairs without actually having to hold public office. In this way, communication performs a legitimating function for state power by deceiving citizens into thinking they're more involved in politics than they really are. Really, they are finding ways to justify decisions that have already been made by others. They're engaged in a kind of spectatorship rather than meaningful citizenship. In legitimation crisis, Habermas argues, however, that this must inevitably break down. Sooner or later, this communication will allow us to see the contradiction between the citizenship powers we ostensibly have and the reality of spectatorship. The state can try to delay this by intervening in the cultural sphere, but sooner or later, the powers of communication will not only cease to perform the legitimating function, they will produce a legitimation crisis. In that crisis, the state will either have to repress demands for more meaningful democracy or it will have to make concessions, allowing for greater levels of participation to restore the ability of communication to perform the original legitimating function. Since the state cannot go on repressing the citizens forever and ever, sooner or later, Habermas thinks these concessions must happen, and in this sense, liberal states continually make progress toward higher and purer forms of democracy, eventually producing socialism. Now, there seems to be an obvious tension here. If communication is what legitimates the state, how can communication come to delegitimate the state? Why is it that we must necessarily come to see the contradiction on which communication is based? Ultimately, Habermas's theory rests on the idea that when we are communicating, the goal is to be understood and that understanding is possible in the first instance. If we really can understand each other, then we can make progress in our understanding, and that allows us to reach higher levels of consciousness through communication. The public sphere is meant to include everyone, and Habermas even speaks of a transnational public sphere that includes everyone in the world, and which can eventually dissolve national distinctions. Now, a number of practical objections can be raised. It can be argued that the actual existing public sphere has become dysfunctional, due to the rise of television or the internet or social media. Or it might be argued that as civil society organizations decline, the public sphere is shrinking and can no longer perform the functions it might plausibly have performed in the 20th century, a kind of Robert Putnam bowling alone argument. But for someone like Leotard, there's a more fundamental problem. For him, some discourses are so different from one another that it is as if they were different languages altogether, that certain things are necessarily lost in translation. Some discourses even exclude other discourses by design, and many discourses are excluded by capitalism itself. And in many Platonic dialogues, Plato deliberately shows us instances in which the Socratic method fails, in which Socrates is unable to get interlocutors like Callicles or Thrasymachus to understand the concept of, of the good as something distinct and independent from our desires, and from what gives us pleasure. Aristotle suggests that access to the good has a variety of material prerequisites. Citizens need free time, and they need an education that teaches them how to use their free time to develop their intellectual capacities. Without all this, ordinary citizens can be easily deceived by trained public speakers. Habermas must nonetheless insist that all of this can and will be overcome through additional communication. More communication is always the answer to every objection to this argument. Indeed, Habermas can point out that it is not possible to object to his theory without in some way participating in it. By communicating... The objection through language. Of course, there are other ways one could object. Many people simply give up trying to communicate about politics on the belief that communication is futile. Their objection to this argument is entirely implicit. They retreat from the public sphere into the private and hide from public affairs. They watch the world burn passively from behind screens in the comfort of their own homes. I think most citizens these days fall into this category. For these people, the Habermasian insistence that progress will come if only they communicate may sound very much like a demand that they participate in a discourse that cannot meaningfully include their values or which actively seeks to exclude them. Today, public discourse is increasingly dominated by a narrow set of professionals with advanced degrees who demand you speak their technical language as a prerequisite of participation. Why should working people try to communicate in spaces like that? And what can they hope to achieve by spending their time and energy in that way? People are entitled to ask these questions. I'm not sure Habermas has a good answer. Certainly, he has a reply to Plato. He thinks that Plato is trapped in metaphysics. For Habermas, metaphysical views posit that the truth is out there somewhere, and that the philosopher can approach it from a neutral standpoint. His view, on the other hand, he says, is post-metaphysical. It starts from the premise that reason is something we engage in through participating in communication with others. But isn't this stylized distinction just a way of trying to separate Habermas from the very discipline in which he himself participates? And isn't it a way of trying to exclude discourses that Habermas finds incompatible with his own theory? It's not a very good reading of Plato, anyway. Plato very clearly emphasizes that our embodied perspective limits our ability to understand and necessitates that we engage in dialogue with others. It's for this reason that all of Plato's dialogues are, well, dialogues. Yet Plato still emphasizes that dialogue often leads to impasses. At many points in the dialogues, Socrates' interlocutors stop responding. Not because they have been convinced, but because they believe trying to communicate with Socrates is pointless. I suspect that is how Plato would feel about Habermas. For Plato, political theory begins with these impasses. These impasses convince him that the philosopher must go beyond dialogue and take political action. Habermas's theory stops before Plato's begins. But what does Alex think about all of this? I'm interested in Alex's view. Let's hear what it is.
1: What did you mean when you said it stops before action? Because it's all about dialogue, not action?
0: Yes. And I recognize that Habermas would say, well, there's such a thing as communicative action and communication counts as action. But I'm not entirely convinced by that. And I think in recent years, this confusion of communication and language and words and speech with political action has caused a lot of people to do precisely the thing that habermas said in the beginning is ideological which is to think by talking about something in a coffee shop you are actually participating in rule
1: but it seems he's always referencing practical goals and He wants the theory to be based in, I guess, you as a subject and your understanding. So what you put out there and then what's reflected back to you.
0: Yeah. How does that translate into the achievement of practical goals? I guess because you're doing it in every situation. Well, if it happens all the time in every situation, then there would be nothing distinctive about it. No, but maybe
1: it's not all political, so it needs to be more politicized or less in
0: private spheres or less with private words. I don't know. Well, this is why I started from the point about public discourse, right? And this public sphere. Because the public sphere, by, by saying that this takes place in a public sphere, Habermas is saying it cannot be reduced to say, a conversation that you have within the family or a conversation which takes place in a formal institutional setting, like, for instance, a city council meeting, right? It's got to occur in something that's analogous to a coffee shop or to a club.
1: Why? Because I thought it's about the intent, not the effect it has on them.
0: So it doesn't matter Because where. For, for Habermas, it has to bridge the two realms, right? It's got to bridge from the private realm the public so it has to make the person who's in the private realm feel as if they are participating in the public when in point of fact it's very difficult to participate in the public even if you were to go to city council meetings and you made a point to talk in every meeting you would likely just feel that everybody's humoring you and patronizing you you wouldn't feel necessarily like you were accomplishing anything by going to all the meetings and talking A lot of the people who go to all the meetings and talk just become convinced that the people running the city are corrupt and manipulative. So it can't be purely that kind of setting, Uh, nor can it be just talking about things in the family, because that would lead, even if you are able to convince your family members, that just might cause everyone in the family to feel more alienated from the state and from the rest of the society, right? If you just are sitting around with your parents or with your children or with your uh, partner and you're talking about politics, you might come to the conclusion that everybody outside is crazy. That's not going to help you very much. It's going into these spaces that seem public but aren't really public that gets this job done, where you feel like you're participating in public, but really you're hanging out with your friends. That performs the legitimating function for him. So, a lot of the later work doesn't talk as much about the legitimating function of communication, in part because I think if you talk about that side of it, the argument becomes more tenuous. Right? Maybe Habermas by this point no longer believes this, but at least in the beginning, Habermas thought that these communicative spaces could have this legitimating function. And could sustain the ideology that the private and the public are separate and distinct by creating a bridge between them that doesn't actually allow the private individual to participate in the public, but creates the sense that that participation has occurred, a false sense of it.
1: Does the distinction between private and public match on to him talking about system versus life world? System being. So, yeah
0: Yes. So in the later work, you get this reference to life world. So the life world is the cultural space. And then you've got, say, the economic system. And for Habermas, the economic system colonizes the life world insofar as what can exist in the cultural space is too much interfered with by implications of managing the economy. Now, that is something that Habermas talks about in different terms, even relatively early on. So even if you go back to legitimation crisis, Habermas says that all of these uh, economic changes that have happened in the interwar period have had all of these cultural consequences and they produce all of this ideological apparatus that prevents people from uh, straightforwardly confronting the degree to which their democracies are not really democratic. But in that book, it's argued that nonetheless, this somehow must be overcome. Eventually, people must come to a point where they recognize that they're not actually fully participating democratic citizens in the way that they think that they are. The question then is, how do you get there? If communication performs this legitimating function, how does it then flip it all around and have this delegitimating function? And a lot of the rest of Habermas's work is about trying to convince us that that actually comes off, that there is actually some kind of process of developing reason that occurs through deliberation and that this eventually gets us to a point where you can have these ever greater degrees of democratization.
1: He takes it as a fact though that there's evolution because you have to transform and understand things.
0: And yes, also- there's a progress narrative here. Yeah. Which is one of the first things that a lot of people will tend to challenge. They'll go, well, why should we think that the deliberation improves over time? You know, especially if you have something like capitalism operating in the background and Habermas says that the consequences of managing capitalism result in colonization, colonization of the life world. If that's going on, then public sphere, public discourse is constantly being invaded by the economy. And so if you go through a period of neoliberalization like the 80s and 90s, then you would expect there to be even more consequences in the cultural sphere of the way the economy is developing. Now, maybe the argument is because the state is intervening less directly, that it's now happening through the market, that that would give you space. But I don't think that's Habermas's point. I think for Habermas, markets and states can both mess with the life world. It's not like it's only states that do this. Market systems also do it. And it's not as if neoliberalism is... Uh, the getting rid of, of, of the state, it's a change in the relation between states and markets. It's a change in the configuration.
1: I was going to say you, you can prove the evolution empirically, maybe according to Habermas, because you always notice that, well, you can't fail to not learn. So you must always, you can observe that there is always learning taking place. And Are you talking about as, as an individual? Or as a society. So there's
0: mistakes being made constantly. Yes. So you, Do we learn from those mistakes at collectively?
1: Well, you have to respond to it and act practically. So the question, what now? Do you have to respond
0: to it and act practically?
1: Well, in this is. In this society, it's painted as constant crisis. So, as long as you can plan for the next crisis, and weather through this one, it's okay.
0: But you have to you C- have certainly, to meet- on a political level, you have to persuade people that you are responding to crises pragmatically in the moment. But we might, from a different point of view, you know, we might not agree that we are responding to crises pragmatically in the moment. And one of the things that you might do expect to have happen if society as a whole, were becoming more developed through deliberation, is that we might start to get out ahead of problems, and we might not have everything being a response to crisis. For Habermas, a big part of why there's this uh, emphasis on crisis response is that the crisis response allows the state to invoke these epistemic discourses so the state will say there's a technical problem with the economy and that demands that we do this, which will then have these further cultural consequences and these other consequences for people's values, right? All of that, it takes the situation very much out of people's control. If everything is a response to crisis, then you just have to do this because technocratically it's what's required. And so there's no opportunity for the ordinary person to come in. So one of the things that Habermas is trying to do is to unite the possibility of political action on the part of the demos with the needs of a complex technologically advanced modern society that has a high level of bureaucratization, that has a high level of technocratic and technical sophistication. There's an attempt here to put these things together in some way, to democratize in a way which nonetheless fits with the technical needs of the system.
1: It's like democracy and technical needs are are two opposing poles. The more complex you get, the more you lose correct cultural motive. The more democratic you get, the more you have a correct cultural motive, but also could be conservative. And that's the issue.
0: Well, coming out of the World War period for Habermas, we went firmly in the direction of getting things technically operational and away from the direction of, of democratic participation. And then the 60s, the late 60s are meant to be one of these legitimation crises in which there's a demand for more democratic participation. So then if you move away from the technical stuff toward democratic participation there's a possibility of then having technical questions or problems or issues. How do you combine these things together? Well, if you have a population that's becoming better and better and better at thinking about these things, then you would think that the demos would not have values or views that would be so out of step with the technical needs of the system. But then if that's the case, then doesn't that just mean that the life world has been colonized, that the system has thoroughly infected the culture and made it impossible for people to have a culture that is meaningfully distinct or separate from it? How do you have a a progress in people's values or ideas that is not itself uh, determined by the modern technical system and its needs?
1: I guess the implication of the modern technical system and the economy is the administrative logic. So people think he uses the example of schools a lot. It's naturally a commu- you know decided by the parents, but now there's just a new logic that says whatever's traditional no longer applies. So it feels like a rupture coming from yeah, the technocrats.
0: Yes, there's a stripping away of all of these. What what he refers to in legitimation crisis is traditionalistic padding. And this is part of why he thinks that over time you will have a a change and that communication will stop performing the legitimation function, that there will be a loss of this traditionalistic padding as the technocratic institutions get rid of or do away with or erode these other structures that have made them easier to accept in the past. Right. So coming out of immediately out of World War II, you would have a very sophisticated technical New Deal state. And that state would still have a lot of traditionalistic padding, a lot of cultural norms and practices from the uh, pre-World War II period from before the era of the World Wars. And then over the course of the 50s and 60s, that traditionalistic padding wears thinner and thinner and thinner as more and more of the culture becomes a function of the way in which we do things like healthcare and housing and uh, uh, kinds of jobs that the state creates and the way in which the state operates the university system and so on and so forth, right? So that would gradually lead to changes in the ways that we think and, and changes in our cultural practices, and that would thin out a lot of the stuff that we used to have that Uh, Kept us content so then we would get to a point where we would be upset and then that upset would take the form of I have all of these values and things that are not being accounted for by the technical system I'm not able to make those values felt in politics through my speech acts Therefore, I'm going to demand some kind of major institutional change and then at that point Habermas thinks that the state will make Concessions to that because it will not be able to repress that indefinitely but what if the values of people themselves are being distorted over time by this system? What if it's not just a colonization of, say, the life world, but also something that reaches into the mind of people and into the private space and and changes the way that people fundamentally relate to stuff? Uh, what if it creates, you know, bifurcations or ruptures in the culture that cause uh, many people to run off in many different directions and uh, have a kind of Tower of Babel effect that makes it harder for everybody to feel like they're part of the same society or to talk the same language about the same issues. I think there's a number of further questions here. It seems to me that if this path straightforwardly went through, then we would have expected over the course of Habermas's life who have had a series of additional events of this kind. Uh, and maybe Habermas would argue that we have, but they've occurred in other parts of the world. And the way you have to think about this is transnational. And you have to think about the end of the Cold War as itself another instance of this demand for participation. You know, maybe you have to think about the Arab Spring as another instance of this. I can imagine some rejoinders or responses here. But it seems that in the Western liberal democracies, something altogether different is going on.
1: So in the private sphere, we're getting too acquisitive or competitive or yeah, the work ethic just becomes atomistic. Is it just this, a critique of uh, selfishness,
0: egocentrism, but yeah, well, called I- instrumental reason? Yeah, for me, it's a critique of the market and the effect that the market has on people, which will be to encourage those kinds of traits and to make it harder for people to think in other ways, right? So if you're in a situation where the only way that you're ever going to buy a house is to think in this very marketized kind of way, in this very instrumental way about your life, about what you do for your job. And then you, know, you live in a world now where people have a hard time keeping their jobs if they think in a way that's too different from the way that their employer thinks, especially on certain controversial issues. Uh, So in this kind of world, it doesn't pay to think in particular ways. Certain ways of thinking make it much harder for you to get ahead in your career. So it becomes uh, maladaptive to think in various different kinds of ways. Uh, or to have certain positions on major issues, say, to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for instance. Uh, When that happens, you're going to get to a point where a lot of different kinds of discourses become unspeakable. A lot of kinds of ideas can't be spoken or can't be expressed, certainly by no one who is successful in the conventional sense. And then people who aren't successful in the conventional sense don't have the cred, don't have the technocratic cred are generally not uh, people who are capable of leveraging, say, a position within an institution to make themselves heard. Now, a rejoinder might be that we should have deliberations that aren't so lopsided in this way, that include people who uh, are not advantaged by institutions, that include people that don't have advanced degrees. And all of that, in principle, normatively, I'm sure the Habermasian would agree with but in practice that doesn't seem to be the direction our discourse is going in in practice we seem to have you know one set of people who is very focused on what the experts are saying another set of people who hate experts and expertise uh, who are resentful of that class of people and who are engaging in politics from a standpoint of hostility to that and then a further i think much larger group of people who find both of these ways of discussing or communicating exhausting and unproductive and unhelpful, and who would really rather not be involved in politics at all than participate in it if it's going to have anything like that this character to it.
1: That's the populist current,
0: and then you can't give them parties because they feel cheated? I'm not even sure that's the populist current. Right? So I think the populist current would be the anti-expert current. And then you know, there are some people who make a kind of techno-populist argument that these days technocrats market themselves as populists insofar as they frame themselves as going up against an ignorant, uh, empowered enemy. Right, So you know, if you are a supporter of Joe Biden you can still, there can still be a populist aspect to the Democratic Party's campaign insofar as it can frame the Republicans or Trump as being in power or as being the powerful people who are trying to do evil things to you, like take away your right to an abortion, right? So in that sense, there can still be a populist current that is married to a commitment to expertise or to expert opinion. And conversely, with the Trump movement, it's a kind of anti-expert movement that it tends to celebrate the discretionary power of, of, the, of the Trump figure who is not bound by experts and doesn't care what people who are experts think and just forms you know, seemingly his own view, but you know, in practice often a view that's based on whoever he's spoken to most recently and how he's feeling on that particular day. I think that outside of both of those things, there is then the big, big chunk of people who don't vote or who vote reluctantly, uh, who don't particularly like either one of those things. And I don't think that those people are necessarily populist. I think that the those first two movements have more populism in them than this third thing I'm talking about. And this is part of why I picked on Laclau a little while back, because you know, this idea that there can be some kind of populist response, I think that that is something of an elitist argument, uh, ironically, that most people, most ordinary people are not into populism at this stage. I think populism itself has become an elite discourse, ironically, uh, and I think that's what's kind of emphasized by you know, some of these guys who write on techno-populism like Chris Bickerton, and that you know, for the rest of, of this population, you don't really see the politics because there isn't really a politics. These are people who have given up on democratic politics, who have lost faith in that as a meaningful activity by which they can achieve anything. And this is the you know great big silent crowd because by necessity, it's a silent group of people. In, uh, in my book, I don't talk about my book very much on the podcast, but I did put out a book, which I suppose I should have mentioned by now, called The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, The Way is Shut. I suggest that there's something called an American subaltern, a kind of silent part of the population that uh, it's not a silent majority in a kind of Nixonian sense. It's a set of people who are mostly not politically active and so mostly don't express any kind of political will. Now, chunks of this population can occasionally be reactivated or persuaded to vote. But the default stance of this part of the population is to not vote or to avoid mainstream politics. Uh, And I, I think that this chunk of the population is very difficult for political theorists to wrap their minds around because political theorists are people who are when they were young and decided to go into political theory, at least interested enough in politics to think that politics is a meaningful activity, to think that this is something that is part of a good life and that we should want to do. And certainly someone who says that communication is about being understood. you know That's what Habermas says, the telos of communication is to be understood. Surely we all want to be understood. And if this is something that occurs in a public sphere and is a way of of interfacing between the private and the public. And it's the only way that we can be understood is to participate in spaces like this where we can be recognized and seen and listened to by our peers, by people that we're friends with, by people that we respect, but with a sense of fellowship. I think there's an assumption that, you know, wouldn't everybody want that? And wouldn't that be something that everybody would want to do? And maybe there, you know, this is when you start talking about ideal deliberations, perfect hypothetical versions of this. Maybe some perfect hypothetical version of this would have that kind of appeal. But that isn't generally what we're talking about in real politics. We're usually talking about meetings you can go to that are not very fun to go to at all, that where you have to listen to a lot of people that you don't particularly like um, say things that, you don't agree with, but very often it's not worth the cost to say that you don't agree because you know, raising the issue will be more trouble than it's worth. And the response to this can be, well, this that kind of deliberation should be improved and there should be some rules. and. There should be some way of constructing the deliberative space to make it work better. And, you know, if only, if only, if only we had the right rules. And if we don't have the right rules yet, well, let's deliberate. Let's discuss and communicate together about what the rules should be. And eventually we'll come up with the right rules. Uh, But all of the problems then get kicked back into a meta discussion about how we should structure communicative spaces. And this has been going on a lot in the Habermasian literature in recent years, where they have a discussion about how to discuss and of course, all of the problems with the discussion are also in the discussion about how to have discussion. Well,
1: that's why he's so focused on the practical. So I guess it would look like less equality of access to the elite meetings, which are boring, and more just equality of outcome in everyday political situations. So the... the the political expands to non-elite situations. So probably, yeah, as you were saying, things in your private and your work life and your consumer choices, having more participation, however that looks,
0: doesn't have to be- well, it doesn't seem like a, a consumer choice is really properly a communicative act. If we're going to call, I'm not going to buy something because I don't like the person or the company that's selling it a communicative act now we're really stretching what communication is
1: but i thought the market's uh, always adjusting to subjects trying to appeal appease people
0: well the market is doing that uh you know based on price signals but to say that that's a communicative act i think implies uh If you broaden that out to the point where that's a communicative act, I think that would be to hollow out the word communication a bit. Like I'm thinking about in Albert Hirschman's book, Exit, Loyalty, and Voice, or Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. I can never remember which way those three terms go, even though the book is in my PhD thesis and I really ought to be able to remember uh, he draws a distinction between exit and voice, right? So voice is is talking with language, demanding that something be better, that it improve. And exit is saying nothing and just quietly leaving or not bothering with the thing anymore. And I think if we say that exit is a communicative act, then a lot of the emphasis on language and on the function or purpose of speech would really become redundant in this theory because at this point, anything you would do would be an instance of, of communication. And all of the specific definitions that were drawn used in the beginning to say this is something that occurs in, in, a, in public space and this is about bringing the private and the public together. If exiting you know, refusing to vote or uh, boycotting a product. uh, If that is termed speech, now this is something you don't actually need to go to a coffee shop to do. You don't have to go to a coffee shop to refuse to buy chicken from Chick-fil-A. You you don't have to talk to anybody. You can watch television, go, Chick-fil-A did what? And then you can just refuse to buy the chicken, And you don't actually have to talk to anybody to do that. There's nothing very intersubjective about that. Yes, there's a price mechanism that will signal back to Chick-fil-A that the fact that they took that public stance has caused maybe some people not to buy the chicken. But maybe that won't even happen. Maybe some other people will choose to buy the chicken because they like what Chick-fil-A said and they won't even be able to tell from the sales that anybody was upset.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking how to sell a product nicely can just, you always try to evolve how it comes across to the customer. So you don't want it to seem transactional. You want to hide the fact that it's a exchange maybe even.
0: Well, I I would say that I prefer it when it's transactional in an exchange because that's more honest, I mean, when you, are talking to someone who's trying to sell you something and they pretend that they're trying to be your friend in many cases that's more upsetting because now you have someone who's pretending to be your friend while they sell you something and you feel a little bit like somebody's playing a trick on you even if it's done in a sincere way even if the person does really mean to be friendly okay i
1: change it to business becoming more open and transparent constantly then as an empirical thing you can see it's always learning about yeah, it's always fe- it's a
0: feedback. You know, I was doing a YouGov survey the other day. Sometimes I do YouGov surveys. And one of the questions that they asked is, would you rather you know businesses take stands on uh, social and cultural issues or be authentic and transparent to their mission, by which I infer the mission is making money? And I thought, you know, I'll answer be authentic and transparent to their mission, but a lot of other people won't answer that. They'll answer, I want them to take social stances that agree with my social stances. And that's part of the trouble is that even on a question like that, you're not going to get everybody to agree.
1: But it's implied that you being at the business, you'll be treated as, I guess, able to form a will that's agreed on as fair by both parties, maybe not by standards of truth, but by just the conditions it comes out of practically.
0: So what's there? I think in a lot of our transactions, we don't really agree that they're fair. We just don't really have any choice but to agree because of a power disparity in the transaction. So a lot of the time, fairness doesn't even really come into it. If you start thinking about fairness too much while you do transactions, you'll get very upset. It's really not to your psychological benefit to think about fairness when you engage in transactions. You could talk yourself out of buying a lot of things that you probably need if you think too much about fairness. But, you know, conversely, if you don't think about fairness, then you'll often be taken advantage of.
1: Maybe just because it's self-regulating anyway. The life world. So even though it's colonized by system and commodification, it's still something you naturally see as, yeah, you see the
0: agents involved in it as other communicative partners. Well, that would be to go in a kind of Adorno direction uh, and talk about, say, you know, the labor market is something reified, something people take as natural And certainly, markets are often reified and taken as natural, and the outcomes of market transactions can be reified and taken as natural. But also, a a point that Adorno made about that, that I think is really sharp, is that even if you get to a point where you can point out that this is reified, that this isn't really uh, fair, that it is the outcome of some sort of power distribution... Even if you can point that out, that in and of itself does not get rid of it. The critique of reification is insufficient. Because the labor market itself stems from a set of material circumstances, you know, that we have a particular kind of economic system structured in a particular way. And even if you come to problematize the way it's structured, the fact that you have problematized it does not in and of itself Empower you to change the situation. Now, if you're Habermas, if everybody's problematizing something and communicating about that, it's hard to see how that would not result in some kind of change. Because if everybody decides that, say, the labor market is uh, unacceptable because it involves power disparities that are not acknowledged, uh, then you would expect them to act on the basis of that. But then there's this question of how do you turn this opinion that people have, even supposing people have the right opinion, into meaningful political action? What is it that people can do once they have this opinion? And I think in the 20th century, it's often just kind of assumed or taken for granted. And I think lots of theorists do this. This is not at all a critique uniquely of Habermas. That when people recognize contradictions in the system, that they will go out and take to the street and shut the country down over it. And that's what they did in 1968. And that's what they did in 1917. And that's what they threatened to do at various points at other times in other places. Go out into the streets, shut down the country. Bunch of strikes, general strike, shut it down until you get what you want. Uh, These days, that's not what happens when people are critical about the state. These days, people go online, they go on social media and they express their view and other people like or comment on it or respond to it or retweet it or what have you. And then nothing really happens. And in that sense, social media has become a kind of public sphere which performs the legitimating function that Habermas laid out to start with. You know, when you post on social media, you think you are participating in something public but actually what you do doesn't affect anything. And there was a time when people thought that it wasn't going to be that way. There was a time when people were looking at the Arab Spring protests and going, see, Facebook is helping these people to organize meetings and assemble themselves and see social media activism is in some way connected. You know, there was this whole thing uh, called Kony 2012 when a bunch of kids were being organized through social media to do something about Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. Of course, when it came time, though, to translate that into people in the street demanding that the government do something about Joseph Kony, nobody really showed up. The actual number of young people who physically came out for it was very limited. And very little was ultimately done about Joseph Kony. And this has tended to be the way things have gone with uh, activism on the internet that is, su- is supposed to produce direct political action. Now, we have seen that political candidates can generate some level of enthusiasm online for themselves. You know, Donald Trump's use of Twitter being an obvious example, or Bernie Sanders' dank meme stash from a while back. You know, These uh, groups and, and pages and so on can be ways of getting people to vote. For somebody but that seems to be about as far as it goes really and now there's been an increasing bifurcation even of of that so back in 2016 most of the talk about politics was going on on Facebook the consequential talk the way the Facebook algorithm was rigged up in 2016 political content was very viral and lots of people were posting on Facebook about politics and getting their stuff seen. And Facebook wasn't really intervening to make sure that particular kinds of perspectives got ahead. In the years that have followed, the social media companies have gotten much more interested in policing speech on their platforms. And then there's also been, a, a, a as a consequence of that, I think to some degree, a breakdown in the agreement of people on where to post. So now, far fewer people are focusing their political posts on Facebook. Many of them are posting on Twitter. Many of them are posting on TikTok. You've got people posting on Instagram and on Blue Sky and on uh, Threads and all these other, other different places. And increasingly, these discussions are different from each other. They don't really interface with each other. And the people who prefer these different social media platforms are saying something about themselves, with their preference. So there's much less of a porous character than there was back in 2015, 16. And I think for a lot of people in the 90s, the assumption was that the internet would produce a, a benevolent effect through that porous discussion. But after 2016 and Donald Trump's election and Brexit, it was decided that it actually has a very negative effect because the people who are participating in the space are not capable of sorting out what's true from what's false or who's reliable from who's not reliable who's a real expert and who isn't and so the trend was then to go in the other direction but i don't think habermas
1: is talking about social media he wants maybe legal legally protected organizations which aren't trade unions so it's like it's more organization, but not heavy socialist stuff. Just more democracy and
0: things. Well, if we, if we go back to the old-fashioned 60s and 70s conception of the public, uh, you know, the public sphere, we're really talking about stuff that's analogous to a coffee shop, places where people go and get together with people they know, literary societies, There aren't very many people who participate in that sort of thing anymore. And if people do go out with their friends, say for a drink at the pub, they don't necessarily talk about politics or public affairs. A lot of the conversation these days is about managing your private life, drama at work, life hacks, uh, do-it-yourself projects around your house.
1: But if we're decentralizing, that's what's supposed to be more political. He's trying to privatize well, the political so you don't talk about the normal political topics at these political meetings. Is, is this stuff political? What's political about it? I don't know, but I thought he wants to expand the, the private into the political so that more private things are political.
0: That's how you get decentralized government. It's not- well, I don't think the, the principle... Goal here is decentralized government because there is an admission here that democracy has to be in some way compatible with the technical needs of a modern state system. Uh, There is an emphasis on more democratic participation, but if we're operating from the premise that the stuff that comes out of our work environment and our relationship to work is not a problem and is should be the meat and potatoes of what we bring into politics. And a lot of that stuff is the product of our exhaustion. You know, the stuff that you talk about with your friends when you're off of work about, you know, how you packed your lunch for the week, you know, what grocery stores you've been to recently and who's, you know, which ones are good, how you manage your time and your energy away from work. Uh, You know, a lot of this stuff is about coping with being at work. Which video games are good? Uh, have you seen a good movie lately? A lot of the things that we talk about instead of politics in these settings are ways of trying to cope with life. It's hard to see how they're political. Now, if, if you could say that they're political, but I'm not sure that would be a good thing to do. I don't know what we would accomplish by saying that all of those discussions are political. Other than to suggest that a lot of discussions that don't have much to do with the distribution of wealth or power in the society uh, are, are nonetheless the substance of how we engage with politics. And if we're going to think that, then we're not going to come close to tackling any of those central Problems. Those were problems that seemed to be of interest to Habermas, at least early in his career. You know, these questions of, of power, it wasn't just about creating a feeling in the people participating in the discussion that they're having a meaningful role. It was about actually making that the case. Yes, you can start up all sorts of conversations that make people feel like they're doing something that matters. But Habermas used to care about it really being the case that they were. That legitimation crisis, you're supposed to demand a more substantive form of democracy, and then you're supposed to get it. You are not supposed to just get every conversation you have about anything labeled as a political conversation for the purposes of making you feel like you're participating. Maybe
1: if you interpret political as make better, and then... You take, yeah, you just have more of a- Right.
0: If you hollow out the concept of the political to the point where it no longer means what it used to mean, and no longer really directly addresses these questions of who's got power in society and who doesn't, and who's got the wealth and who doesn't have it, and you brought it out so that it includes any kind of normative impulse that you have at all, including, you know, who's got the better McNuggets, McDonald's or Burger King? <laughs> well- yeah. You know, okay, then yeah, it would all be political, but but that would be kind of pointless, wouldn't it? What what good would that do apart from just creating a society where the state can continue regardless of whether it does anything to meaningfully take care of its people.
1: No, I, when people think about make better, they don't just think about the technocratic success model. It's also the communicative or, or not the system but also the life world, so it would be the whole thing it would also be yeah how can
0: yeah it would, be, it would be about you know my boyfriend or my girlfriend ghosted me didn't reply to my text you know what should i do you know, now that's a political conversation you know, it, it becomes endless endless distractions and amusements and maybe this is just me refusing to take the point that if you really do think that all of this stuff is just as important as who's got the wealth and power in society then, uh, you know, yeah, you would, you would say, shouldn't we talk about everything with our friends and not just these political questions. But then I think in the literary societies, they probably did talk about a lot of this other stuff. You know, they probably did read novels. They probably did. I mean, that's what a lot of these literary societies were devoted to. They probably did discuss art and culture, but they also discussed political questions. And a lot of what we're doing, you know, are we discussing art and culture when we're just talking about the stuff that we do to cope with the fact that we have jobs that we don't particularly like? Is that, you know, discussing art and culture in the 18th century French salon sense? Or are we just likening these things to avoid having to confront what's really going on?
1: But what I say I'm using, I'm discussing it politically, I would say This is my private stuff. And then now I open it to the political, which is, yeah, it's a validity claim that is criticizable by anyone. So it just had, so then automatically in the background, you have those big questions that you say, like the inequality or, um, yeah, basically what anyone would think. It's like a really expansive
0: argument. (laughs) These days, People rarely bring that stuff in because they feel like it's pointless. You know, in the States, one of the things people say is, you know, you should never bring up politics or religion in mixed company. No,
1: You might not mention it, but just even the threat of it could haunt the conversation. Like, okay, but you're saying it against the background of all this. So it's like you get judged for being too um, either elitist or... Uh, you know,
0: revolutionary or whatever. It seems like that would just make you want to not go. Anytime you open your mouth or say anything, you don't know whether somebody in the room who who is either, you know, uh, rapidly of one political disposition or the other uh, is going to take what you say to be an instance of the bad thing that they're trying to uh, police out of the conversation Uh, And therefore, anytime you open your mouth, you're in danger of being shouted at, which is how I think most people feel. Uh, Anytime they open their mouth about something even closely, uh, even tangentially related to religion or politics in mixed company, they're in danger of somebody taking offense and yelling at them about it. So they don't bother to open their mouths. So our conversations are rarely about anything important. And we end up with a communicative space that is all small talk. It's a... yeah. The tyranny of small talk, because once you get to this point where everybody is immediately problematizing anything anybody says about politics or religion, there's no opportunity to be understood. There's only an opportunity to be misunderstood.
1: If the people with you are just going to disagree, whatever they say, isn't that just low emotional intelligence?
0: And then... Well, but if most people have low emotional intelligence, then where's the progress that we're supposed to be having? Where's the gradual improvement in people's abilities to to understand where other people are coming from that seems to be the necessary starting point for this whole theory? It doesn't seem to be that people are gradually gaining an understanding of one another's perspectives or points of view. On the contrary, it seems like for a lot of people, many perspectives that used to be something that they could engage with are now unthinkable or equated with some kind of evil villainous doctrine. Right? If you are a, a secular liberal and someone comes up to you with you know, some sort of religious belief, you are more likely to think that they might be a fascist. And conversely, if you're a, a religious person and someone comes up to you and expresses a, a liberal secular belief, you are more likely to think that they are a Stalinist. And this is where you start from, uh, trying to equate the person who's different from you with something that you can say is profoundly evil as as an excuse to to not only not engage with them, but to then even if you're sufficiently worked up, go to their employer and tell their employer that they've hired a Stalinist or they've hired a, a fascist and that they've got to fire that person. You know, to show that their brand cares about the right issues in the right way. Yeah, this just seems very far from me. Uh, from me, from any kind of public discourse of the type Habermas described.
1: Maybe the company is the first inroad because the market is faster than the state. But if the if it's just more embedded in the schooling, because you can see in different countries there are different ways of tolerating disagreement. I
0: guess some might be more progressive. So, Yeah, it it certainly can't be the case that the ideal deliberation is the one in which people can run to your employer and tell your employer that you've said something that they don't like, and then your employer will punish you for having said something that offended somebody. That can't possibly be the ideal deliberation because that encourages everyone to just be totally quiet about what they really think. Yeah, nobody would ever raise any of the objections that they feel. The deliberative space would be entirely uh, pretend. I, get, I think that's kind of where we're headed. The person who's being accused
1: and has to, yeah, how would they would they need more legal power just to be able to talk to the, uh, the compla- the person making the complaint, to have equal status with them in the dialogue, not just to be punished by the complainer.
0: Well, a lot of the time, the the person making the complaint and the person being complained about, you know, by the time the complaint has happened, these two people won't have anything to do with each other because they view each other as a friend and enemy, and you can understand why they're viewing each other that way because somebody's trying to take somebody's job, somebody's livelihood, on the basis of something that has been said. So, you're no longer in a space where a discussion is being had. People are trying to use. The corporation as a coercive instrument.
1: But you can fall back on the Marxism in a way and just say, leave it to the future because the friend-enemy distinction is something that will remain until the international state of nature is gone and all the norms match all the laws.
0: Well, but Habermas said that we would gradually come to better understandings. And if we're coming to better understandings of each other, then we should be gradually undermining friend-enemy distinctions and they should be diminishing, they should be withering away gradually over time as we talk to each other. And it doesn't seem like that's what's happening at all. But the, it's still
1: a sign of progress that people turn to, like you said, the, conserva- the conservative reaction against the technocratic stuff because that shows they're unhappy with just the way friend-enemy distinctions are being made. And they could be easily won over. I
0: think they're just drawing those distinctions differently. And Habermas certainly doesn't think that those people have the right kind of reaction to all of this. He's not happy with those people either.
1: No, but they they have the motivation of trying to bring back sentiment and practical agreement and consensus. So more
0: life world stuff. But, But that was something that used to come from the left and used to be something that... Yeah, Habermas—you could find in multiple parts of the political spectrum. And if that's something that is to be surrendered to the right, you know, then that would suggest that there has been a real hollowing out of the capacities of the center and the left. And and for what it's worth, I think all, including the right, all three parts have had capacities hollowed out and are not able to participate in discussion in the way that they once did, once upon a time. Yeah it's really become very difficult for a lot of people to talk to anybody they don't agree with about anything without thinking that some terrible harm has been committed and that somebody, somebody's boss has to be called. Somebody's got to get the manager on the phone. And that's what I think is really, you know, along with everything else. I mean, how is it that people are meant to grow in their capacity to understand one another if when they do participate in these spaces, they're completely gassed because they've been stuck at work. And their employers have been reading you know, productivity management material you know, for generations now. There have been people putting up books and journal articles about how to squeeze product productivity out of your workers, get all of their energy and make sure that when they go home, they don't go home with any of their energy. They've given it all to you, and by the time they get home, they're exhausted, and they can't do anything but watch TV or play on their phone. And that's, that's been the goal of all of this management stuff, is to get all of the workers' time and energy that you possibly can get for the company. And in that kind of situation, you, know, when you're out of work and you're with your friends, you're not going to have a really high-energy intellectual conversation about you know, how can we understand each other better? It's going to devolve into something reptilian where people are just looking for somebody to blame about how they feel. When really, you know, the reason that people feel so bad is that all their time and energy has been siphoned away by an ever more efficient set of managers who have gotten ever better at taking everything they have and leaving them with as little as they can get away with.
1: My initial reaction would be just to say they would still be the impulse for, yeah, just continuous understanding outside of work. And also, yeah, just to ask the question, is that why it's a systematic theory? Because there's just this constant belief that it reasserts itself, the need for.
0: Ultimately, this comes down to a question of faith faith in communication and language and how much of it you've got. I think that really is what this comes down to with Hebermas. And you get to a a bedrock point where it's really just a question of, do you believe in what we can achieve by more talking? Do you believe in the talking and in more of it? Uh, And that's where I think at this point, a lot of people, even on that question, can't find much agreement. And I would submit that if you can't agree on that, if you can't agree on the talking being useful, oh boy, it's gonna be hard to get anywhere with more talking. Hmm. You agree with talking being useful. Are you saying that your opponents don't? Or just other people? Oh, well, I'm not so sure how far I agree with talking being useful. You know, I, I think that talking, talking can help. In many situations, talking can help, but not all the time. I tend to kind of agree with Plato that while of course you need dialogue, there are going to be many circumstances where you're going to hit limits and you're going to find that you can't seem to make much more progress by talking. Or you're in a situation, an institutional setting, where the conversation has in some way been rigged such that more talking isn't going to help. And people aren't interested in your suggestions about how to make the conversation better because they wrote the rules this way for a reason. They want the conversation to go a particular way. And they didn't approach the conversation with some kind of open-ended, communicative, deliberative purpose in mind. Uh, They approached it to legitimate a set of decisions that they always already intended to make. And I think that Habermas... Uh, Habermas's insight in the beginning that communication often serves that function means that we have to be skeptical of claims that it can stop serving that function. Uh, Or certainly that it always doesn't serve that function. Surely sometimes it does. Sometimes you're in a conversation that is really just about getting you to go along with something. And yes, it can be said that, well, that's not an ideal deliberation. And you've got to talk about how you talk until somebody changes how you talk and this game can be played and played and played but also we only have so much time while we're on this earth we're all getting older we're all going to die and I I have a strong suspicion that this project uh, ultimately just causes you to talk until you're dead that the ultimate praxis that comes out of this is a, a people talking and talking and talking and getting not very far until they're dead now habermas is still alive so there's still time yet for him it could still be that all of the talking will go somewhere while he's alive i still don't see it as all
1: talking because it's about whatever you say has to be tested under the conditions under which it's speakable so it always folds back onto the marxist
0: test the situation first and so even if it Most of what you say can't be tested in that straightforward kind of way, or by the time you've tested it, you've tested it in a past situation, which is already different from our situation. Very quickly, things that you do in the past don't apply or don't work in the same way now. For that reason, a lot of the stuff that people tried in the 20th century politically in terms of protesting, in terms of organizing, a lot of it doesn't work now because We have different conditions now. We no longer have states that fight world wars, that have mass mobilization conscription armies. We no longer have enormous, enormous production of munitions that means that the state is dependent for its survival on the cooperation of an industrial working class that makes armaments. We don't have the breakdown in trade and capital mobility that we had in the 20s and 30s. So... The circumstance is constantly changing and evolving. Now you can respond with, well, it's necessary to test these things in the context in which you intend for them to be applied. The trouble is that the context is always shifting and it's never precisely the same as it was. And as soon as you do something in one instance, in the next instance, you can't be sure that it's the same as that previous instance. And that can be true even days apart. Sometimes you have somebody in your life that you... want to get to do something with you and you ask them, hey, would you be interested in doing this thing? And they say, no, I don't want to do that. And then sometimes if you come back to them a couple days later and ask them the same question, they'll go, you know what? Okay, sure. Now, it seems like the same context. You ask somebody the same question. It's the same person you're asking. And it's the same question. And all that's passed is some time you haven't done anything else to change the situation. Nevertheless, the fact that it's a different instance and that it happens at a different moment, that it potentially catches them in a different mood, or they've had a time in which the question is set in their uh, subconscious, these things can all contribute to a different response. And that's why Hume has a point about how you can't really be sure that uh, the past will predict the future. And the thing about empirical research, and social science in general, is that it's always about the past. You know, even when you are observing things that are going on now, by the time you publish your findings, your study is about the past. And therefore, there's always a limit to the degree to which any kind of empiricist exercise can prove that something does or doesn't work. As a strategy to be implemented in the future, you know, as something we might do prospectively.
1: No. And Hume is also wrong about separating is from ought, <laughs> according to Habermas, but just because you mentioned
0: him. Oh, boy. Well, that would be a whole different ball of wax. and We're over an hour. But thanks, Alex, for uh, giving a, a good defense of Habermas. It's been fun. And thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.